the fundamental task of education is to assist, to collaborate, in bringing to pass the conversancy of the person and the world in their mutuality. This is even more fundamentally a task of placement within the fullness of historical time, so that it may become the time of our lives, than it is one of adjustment simply in contemporaneous relationship to the things around us. For the reach of time alone can fund the meaning of these things and endow our lives with a purposefulness in which we embrace things with respect. That, too, is the way of self-respect insofar as it comes to past. Only if the past comes alive in us do we have a future which can own us. That seems to be the hardest thing for present and future-oriented America to grasp. Welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Modern Age, National Review, and Law and Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions, while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. In this episode, we discuss a short essay by the philosopher Henry Bugby, Education and the Style of Our Lives. That's where that initial quotation comes from. Bugby taught for a number of years at the University of Montana, This short, beautiful, and thought-provoking essay was occasioned by a report that a commission presented to the Montana legislature. In just over nine pages, Bugby lays out the core of education as seen from the standpoint of both teacher and student. He seeks the revitalization of a dialogue that brings text and world together. Experience is illuminated and meaning is discovered. The piece was published in Profiles, the magazine of the University of Montana, in May of 1974. Our guest is Joseph Keegan. Joseph is an editor at Athwart Magazine and The Point, and a PhD student in philosophy at Tulane University. He's written articles for magazines including Plow, First Things, Tablet, and The New Atlantis. Hello, Joseph Keegan. Welcome to Enduring Interest Podcast. Thanks for having me, Flag. Really, really glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. So I had never heard of Henry Bugby nor this this essay. So I was excited to have you introduce this this piece to me, Education in the Style of Our Lives. It's one of the reasons why I started the podcast was to, uh, you know, get friends and acquaintances to send me things I had never heard of. So this is uh, this is really exciting to discover a, a thinker I just wasn't familiar with. And I suspect our listeners probably won't won't be familiar with Bugby. So why don't we begin by just talking about who he was and the original context uh, for this essay? Sure. Yeah. You're, you're certainly not the only person who hasn't heard of this guy. Um, he's been sort of a, a fringe thinker at the edges of things for, for much of his life um, and, 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 and very much there afterward. But yeah, so Bugby, um, he was a professor of philosophy, largely at the University of Montana, but a number of, a number of other places yeah, he was he was born in New York in 1915. He had a he got a bachelor's degree from Princeton and did his PhD in philosophy at UC Berkeley with a dissertation called The Sense and Conception of Being, 
uh, very light subject matter, of course. And he finished that under this uh, Latvian American professor of Hegel named Jacob Leuvenberg. So he was kind of ushered into philosophy by means of by, by way of this kind of Hegelian continental tradition. Uh, but his time at Berkeley was interrupted by the war. So he spent two years on a on a Navy destroyer in the Pacific Theater, and then he came back and finished his dissertation. And then pretty much immediately after graduating, he was hired to teach at Harvard by William Van Orman Quine. So he was plucked out of his PhD and thrown into this Harvard department. And uh, he didn't get tenure at Harvard because he, he refused to abide by the publisher parish uh, paradigm. I think he wrote a sing he published a single piece of writing in his time there. It was about a 12 page essay uh, of something like ethical philosophy, but it's a little too slippery to <laughs> to really, really kind of fit the mold. Um, but but nonetheless, Quine, uh, he, he, remained, he retained a friendship with Quine, and Quine once described him as, quote, the ultimate exemplar, or exemplar of the examined life. So he had a number of appreciators um, in relatively high places from, from, various, from various parts of the kind of philosophical enterprise. Um, so after Harvard, he, he held positions at University of Nevada, at Stanford, at Chatham College in Pittsburgh, and then at Penn State. And then finally, he landed at the University of Montana. He spent the rest of his career teaching there and was um, twice the department chair. He only wrote a single book. Um, it was called The Inward Morning, and it's a very bizarre book of philosophy. It's it's written as a as a series of journal entries from about August of 1952 to November 1953. It's not a treatise at all. It's um, it's this a strange form of philosophical writing uh, that has very few uh, precedents. And his his project there is to is to think through the fabric uh, the relationship between sort of what is the what is generally right what being is and and how that is reflected in the fabric of one's life so his emphasis his emphasis is on something like wonder and immersion and in, in, in one's place that they live in and upon finding the grounds of ethical action by reflecting on the place where a person already stands as opposed to thinking in terms of abstraction or theory right um where are you now and how how in reflecting upon where you stand can you get to the bottom of, of what it means to act right? And in thinking of sort of thinking about mystery and, and the relationship of mystery and, le and leading a meaningful life. So in that book, he draws heavily from his later good friend, Gabriel Marcel, the French existentialist philosopher, D.T. Suzuki, uh, the, the Zen Buddhist, who he also had a close relationship with, Herman Melville, Meister Eckhart, Shakespeare, Plato, et cetera. So he has, he has a strange mix of influences and references that range from Eastern philosophy to Western philosophy to literature. As you see in this essay, he quotes St. Paul. Um, the, the Bible is very important for him. And he also includes lots of, well, a number of his, of the, the journal entries in the, in the book are just long reflections on memories that he has from the war, um, from his childhood, from his time on a college rowing team, uh, different things that he observed while hiking and fly fishing. Um, so it's this very strange collection of, of thought, um, but nonetheless, a very powerful one. Yeah, that and, sounds interesting. Uh, so, so besides his, his, his BA thesis, his dissertation, and his book, he has only about a dozen or so other essays in existence. And this one was published in 1974 in, this, in the, the official magazine of the University of Montana called Profiles. Um, and it was later collected in a chapbook with about nine other essays that was given to students. So it was written for a very small audience, right, for the University of Montana community, and then sort of passed on to his students to be read. 
and you get the sense it's got to be one of the few kind of beautiful reflections on liberal education that is responding to a uh, blue ribbon blue ribbon commission right from a state government report on post secondary education <laughs> yeah that did not seem like fertile fertile ground for for a beautiful essay but nonetheless you know here here it is yeah it's it's very strange right um he's not an overtly political thinker or political writer but there is a strange sense where he's right. So one, this this is responding exactly to this, you know, that he says something about like the new state constitution in Montana. And yeah, this this open review process that they have for thinking about of thinking about um, education. So it's solicited by a political process. And he has a number of things in the essay that respond to sort of some sort of political developments or political problems of his day. So yeah, it's like a political intervention in a strange way, but not but not directly. But um I mean, one other, one other thing you get from the essay, right, is that uh, he's very committed to this idea that, that philosophical writing is something like philosophical speech, and that it is largely, if not exclusively, for those with whom one shares a life already, and not something to be written for kind of an abstract audience of distant specialists, even though that's what we basically are for him. So there's a strange thing where, you know, it's, it's written for this university community, potentially for the bureaucrats who are to review these essay submissions for this this uh, this educational process in Montana, and then also later for his students. Um, so it's a very intimate piece of writing, which which all of, all of Bugby's writing is is has has a, has that quality of intimacy to it. Right, and I guess I would also say though that it's not an essay that you know would be above the necessarily above the heads of you know, your average citizen, there's no highfalutin philosophical language, you know, Mm -hmm. there's no social scientific jargon. I mean, occasionally it's, it's deep and and perplexing, but it's, you know, it's not something that, you know, you would read and it it would make you kind of feel inadequate. It would make you feel perplexed at times, but um, I don't think there's anything in it that, um, that, that would, you know, make someone think, oh, I just don't have the the education for this or, or something like that. Yeah. One of the strange things about Bugby and his project is that you see this, especially in his book, The Inward Morning, that he he is grappling with themes and problems and questions and doing it in a way that feels very reminiscent of something that you find in Heidegger or in kind of this, this post-Heideggerian tradition or, or, or in a sort of existential tradition. But he did all of this years before he had ever encountered Heidegger. So later in his life, he, he, he has some, he does some seminars with Gadamer and with he goes to Germany and and meets Heidegger, but he wrote his dissertation called the sense and conception of being, uh, which was very much sort of uh, grapples with these, these Heideggerian sort of themes 10 years before he'd ever read a Heidegger thing. So he, and he does it in this, right. in, In this very kind of yeah, as, as you say, it's a non-specialized, I want to say sort of American idiom. Like he, he seems to just kind of use the language that that we more or less, you know, that the words are rather simple. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. He finds words like, you know, courage and risk and so on and so forth, fine for communicating important uh, philosophical themes. Um, we don't need uh, the, the specialized terminology of German idealism to do this kind of thing, right? Right. Yeah, in that, in that respect, it, it reminds me both in the language and then I guess the immediate context of the two Strauss essays I talked about with Michael and, and Catherine Zuckert, right? They're both mm-hmm. responding to a concrete request by a, you know, in, in the case of Strauss, it was uh, a, an invitation to uh, um, 
I think a graduation or, or a matriculation ceremony for the adult learners at, at Chicago and, you know, prompted him to think, think about what, what liberal, liberal education is. And he's, he seems to be doing the same thing, but again, prompted by this, um, the state of the state of Montana to really make sure that the, the state is doing what it, what is required to do by the, the constitution. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, and like, like Strauss, right. He wants to avoid, um, the jargon of, of academic philosophy. Um, and you, you really pick that sense up that he's trying to write in a way that, that subverts that tendency and that speaks, speaks both with clarity and with depth, right? There's, uh, there's a simplicity to it, but it's, it's a simplicity that's masking, um, a, a, a really serious depth of thought. Well, we can dive in now. Uh, it's a short enough essay. We should tell our listeners it's about uh, 10 typed. Look, looks like the PDF you sent, you sent me was, was, comes from a, a typewriter. So t- 10 uh, double-spaced TypeScript pages. It addresses a number, of, a number of topics related to liberal education. So we can walk through them, um, I think, pretty, pretty easily in, in our time together. He starts off by talking about um, the that the school experience should stretch mentality and and vitalized imagination, uh, and then he says no deep and continuing development of a person's educational potential is possible except as the person is willing to venture and to risk himself. And so this idea of self risk turns out to be an important theme in the first couple paragraphs. And he makes the case that self-risk is required both by student and by the teacher. And so maybe we should start, Joey, by just talking about self-risk. What what does he mean by that? Uh, Is is self-risk something different to the student as opposed to the teacher? Um, Just what what does it mean to to risk oneself uh, in Bugby's essay? Yeah, one thing I'll note is that he's he, not only does he say that teachers and students should do this kind of thing, but also administrators. Oh yeah, so that, I thought right. was a, a really interesting inclusion. Yep, yep. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, so self risk. I, I he doesn't seem to think that they're all that different, but that the the self risk of the student is dependent upon the ability of the teacher to do this kind of thing and to be the student's sponsor. He says um, in kind of learning how to do this kind of activity to put one's to put one's meaning of themselves and of the world up for question mm-hmm. such that they can actually learn to become responsible, responsible for meaning, right? This, this ultimately, he says that, right, liberal or liberating education is the f- fullest form of education. And the purpose of liberal or liberating education is to, is to win responsibility for and to win a kind of discipline of interpreting meaning. And so the teacher and the student are both responsible for this kind of thing. We're all kind of equally responsible for carrying out this process. Um, but he doesn't seem to think that a student is naturally capable of this kind of thing on their own. That, right, we young people are full of all of these sort of unreflective convictions. They're subject to the sort of idle talk of the world. They have all of these ways of thinking about the world that, are, that cause them problems and, and, that are, and that are very shallow. And he says that, in order to sort of win uh, freedom from conventionality and conformism, it requires courage and requires risking yourself and requires doing dif- the, the sort of difficult task of education, which you're, you're, you are shepherded into by means of 
not only a teacher, but also right the material that you're that you're studying has to also be capable of doing this kind of thing. You can't just be reading anything. You have to be reading those things that can evoke this kind of this kind of activity. And so the the risk then can be understood as um, you're you're risking putting your own initial instincts about something kind of under a under a microscope, you know, to question what you thought before you entered the classroom that day. Uh, and then I guess also risk in the sense of saying something out loud about what you're thinking about the question before you that you don't know if it's right, you don't know how people will react to it, you don't know how your teacher will react to it. And so maybe by self-risk, he's he's just trying to suggest how um, how difficult that that is. I mean, I guess things that you know, if you if you think about what happens in the classroom, it might not occur to you that self risk is is at work. That you you know the teacher asks questions and the student gives the answers. And if that's the beginning and the end of it, it doesn't seem to involve the risk that he's that he's talking about. Yeah, one one thing that I've that I've learned in um in talking to undergraduates today is that they're all really afraid of looking stupid, both to each other and to teachers. And I think that right, I think Bugby recognizes this and and. You know, this is a response to that. It's like you have to be willing to look like an idiot. You've got to be. You've got to be willing to sort of try to win truth for yourself by doing the difficult work of say, right, of trying to say the thing, trying to speak the truth, basically, in some way. And and more often than not, when you try to speak the truth, you're going to say a whole lot of wrong stuff instead and look like a dummy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you got to be willing to look like a dummy. You got to be willing to to sort of um, uh, risk an amount of social approbation by your peers. Um, you've got to be willing to have the humility to look back on the things that you used to think and say, "Oh my goodness, I was so wrong about that," and then say, "Oh my goodness, I'm probably so wrong about things today." I mean, there's a lot of kind of there's a lot up for for uh, for questioning, and and, and there, there's a lot at stake in our in our intellectual lives. Bugby recognizes that and realizes that, you know, in order to to grapple with this stuff, it requires courage and it requires, right, these these kinds of uh, these virtues of, intellect, you know, the, the intellectual life uh, is, is something that, that requires a cultivation of virtue. And, and in order to get those things, you have to try them and do them. And it's right. it's difficult. And, you and know, the, then the teacher's self-risk would be similar in that the teacher would have to be willing to share his or her opinions about the the subject matter or the text before them and offer that up to the students as as a kind of con- conviction and so they have to be willing to risk them risk, risk themselves in this in the similar sense as the students putting putting themselves under examination and also put putting their their understanding of the material in question up for under examination right he has this this section i think we'll get into this a little a little bit more later about the need to kind of keep life and education a little bit separate from each other. So, and it, it, it seems like the way that the, one of the means of maintaining this is that the classroom is not just for talking about one's life experience and you can't simply apply a text to one's life. There's, there's, there's a sort of mediating thing between these two, which is like the process of study, right. Of looking at and, and, and reading and engaging with, these great witnesses of, of the human condition from across the, the, the history of, of, of letters, right? And so the teacher has to be able to say, I might be wrong about this thing that I think that I've learned from Dante, or I, I, might, be learn- I might be wrong about this interpretation that I have, or I might be wrong about this idea that I have that then this text will sort of tell me uh, what is actually the case. And I think that the, the teacher risking themselves in, in that way, risking 
their interpretation of things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. ends up becoming the model for the student, uh, the student's kind of existential risk, the student's willingness to put their own life up for question and their, the, 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 you know, the, the, the ways that they conduct themselves as well as the ways that they think and interpret and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the teacher puts themselves at risk too, in, in the sense of, of um, if the student is risking himself or herself and offering an opinion that turns out to be wrong, then it's the responsibility of the teacher to say, well, that that's not good enough or that's wrong. Mm -hmm. And I guess you'd have to, you'd have to be willing to risk this, that student not liking you very much in the next five minutes or, or, or the whole class, or maybe even the whole semester. Right. I mean, that's, it's so we, that's something I talked about um, on the last episode with, uh, with Zena and Jonathan and Roosevelt, right. The difficulty of balancing, attracting students to this, to this kind of, of learning and you know pushing them along, but also showing them when they're not when they're not really thinking through things at, at the level you want them to. It's such a difficult balance to to strike, and so that's that's risky business too, I suppose. Yeah, students don't like to look stupid to their peers or to, or to um, teachers, and teachers don't like to have students angry at them, right? And and I think that both students and teachers have to be have to open themselves up to the risk of right? Frustrating other people, basically, in, in some kind of way. And I, I, again, I, I th this, this is something that I think that Bugby touches on later in the piece, but this inability of teachers to risk having to risk frustrating their students or being kind of afraid of their students, right? That seems to characterize a lot of the, the current shape of higher education, right? That um, there's, a, there's this deference to student anger or student frustration that then creates an enormous amount of problems in the university. Um, and I think that Bugby seems to think that Right. This, the teachers are ultimately responsible for being these kinds of stewards to the students, right, to show them what it looks like to take responsibility for interpreting meaning. And in order to show them how to take responsibility, the teachers have to have to be responsible for it. And the teacher's inability to be responsible translates into the student's inability to be responsible, which translates into this, right, the chaos of, of or one of the kinds of chaos of the modern university. So. I think he's got his finger, his finger on something really important that continues to, 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 to plague us today. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, you already mentioned what I think is, is probably the most interesting um, theme in the, in the whole essay, and that's this relationship between the classroom or, or study or formal education on the one hand and what he calls life and the lived world on the other. It seems to me he wants to avoid two extremes on, on the one hand, a kind of overly rigid uh, separation between those those two things such that, you know, what you do in your formal education, you know, has no connection to or relevance to your your life as as you live it. But on the other hand, he, he doesn't he doesn't want it to be the case that your formal education is something that you engage in so that it will directly control your your life in a in a and a kind of as a kind of blunt instrument of of control, and so he 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 says there needs to be a certain distance uh, between the two realms of of formal education and and the lived world. So maybe talk for a few minutes just about that that distance and and that dynamic that he's he's trying to get at, which is um, you know it seems like a difficult middle middle ground to strike. Yeah, this is one of the places where um, Bugby's kind of slipperiness is. Uh... Uh, most pointed. He's not a, an especially systematic thinker. He's very suggestive, and he kind of throws things out for um, for thought and for provocation. And 
he doesn't right he, he doesn't give us like a an exhaustive explanation of this relationship he just kind of suggests it so so these are likewise some just sort of suggestions about what i think he's trying to get at I mean, it seems to me that he thinks that the stuff of life as it as it is lived is the material for inquiry and for reflection. But inquiry to, to do that inquiry and that reflection, it requires material and a particular kind of pedagogical relationship to evoke it. So it's not something that is simply given. It's not it's not a thing that we can easily just kind of engage in unaided, right? There are there are particular kinds of books and texts, and I think he would even include mathematics and things like this are. These are things that help us to achieve this kind of reflection on our life that we can then, that reflection helps us make sense of the material and the material helps us make sense of our life. So there's, there's this dynamic and kind of uh, sympathetic relationship between one's life and one's study that they refine each other over time. Um, and yeah, he has this whole part where he says education cannot be the process of what he of, of what he calls quote exercising experimental control over oneself and one's own experiences. So he he seems to he seems to really be bothered by this notion that you can go to the university and you can learn a kind of you know model for how you're going to live and then like apply it to your life. Like I'm going to go and become a utilitarian, or I'm going to go and become a, a Marxist. I'm going to go and become you know a, a this particular type of like entrepreneurial business student. And I'm just going to apply this model that I've learned at the university onto my life and I figured it out. That's the good life. That is hugely troubling for him. And that's also, he's, this is what he calls kind of the problem of the lifestyle, which the, the, a, a, a poor kind of university education uh, has been crucial in, in, in promulgating in, in, in at the time this essay was written in the 1970s. So the university has, tends to kind of, give students all of these op these options for lifestyles, but it doesn't really give them a means of apprehending the meaning of one's life in a really deep way. Yeah, there's something like the, the, the life as it's lived, and the material of education and the process of education, they clarify each other in a mutual relationship, such that one kind of lives with books and lives with a teacher and lives with thinking and so on and so forth. And uh, these all become these, these sources of wisdom and sources for grounding one's own, one's own existence rather than this this process of kind of application of, of, of imposing a plan onto your life which never really works and yeah I mean it, you, you know it seems to me that this that the you know these these same kinds of problems remain very urgent for us today right uh, this notion of being able to kind of choose one's identity and and sort of live out an identity um, he has this really poignant turn of phrase where he says, that if you if you think in these terms of kind of applying a lifestyle onto your life, and then that's how you're going to live a good life or whatever, this is how you're supposedly going to win meaning. He says that in that case, quote, self-identity is bound to become a quandary and all too likely a quagmire of self-preoccupation. This lifestyle problem tends to a kind of solipsism, which then recapitulates the exact same problem of, of, of feeling like you have to figure it out, right? If yeah. you if if it's an arbitrary application of something onto yourself, then you're always going to feel the nag of that arbitrariness rather than any sense of groundedness. Right. And then you'll also feel that the way to one, one option in terms of resisting the arbitrariness would be to just appeal to your experience as if experience and the meaning of experience were kind of self-evident and, and obvious. So that this essay too, I think has some, like you say, connections to what we're still struggling with today in, in terms of people and, and students and, and faculty appealing to lived experience 
which sounds like what Bugby means by um, life world or, or lived world. But whereas people who use lived experience today, I think tend to tend to mean that the meaning of that experience then is self-evident and that's meant to be an end and put an end to any discussion or, or question. I think Bugby wants to, to argue that you always have to be responsible for putting your, your life and your experiences under, under reflection and, and sort of wonder about what the, what the meaning of, of X or Y that just happened to me really is. And it's just not, it's not obvious that that, that that meaning can exist in any kind of profound, substantial way without the reflection part of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you come across this, this quote unquote lived experience all the time. And I mean, I've long always found myself sort of wondering what people think that the term means. I also always wonder what, uh, what is unlived experience? <laughs> is, that, is that an option? But yeah, I mean, I, I think Bug, like Bugby cares deeply about something like experience and, and cares deeply about one's intellectual life growing out of one's life as it is lived. I mean, there, there has to be a, a direct connection between these things, but it's not immediate. It's not something that is just simply given. Um, it's not something that can be assumed to win. The, the meaning of one's experience must be won, right, through a kind of effort and that effort is not always like like laborious. Some of it is kind of accidentally stumbling upon the meaning of a thing that you've experienced years down the line. And, and some of it is, you know, what kind of falls out of a conversation with a close friend or something like that. But I think the notion that you can just invoke, quote unquote, lived experience as something that has an immediate legible meaning to it that then can be used to to solicit a kind of response from somebody else like that, that yeah he uh, bugby would would disagree with that profoundly i think yeah the anecdote i i was thinking about when i read this part of bugby's essay was an, an anecdote that frederick Douglass tells in his uh, middle autobiography called my bondage and my freedom and he, he talks about his battle with a slave breaker called covey so this is when he was 18 years old maybe actually a little bit younger, maybe 16, 17, 1834. Douglas, who was, who was a pretty uh, big, strong, strong guy at a certain point, decided I'm not going to let Covey beat me anymore. And so there's this battle that he, that he describes in, um, in his autobiography, and he holds Covey off for a couple hours. And eventually, you know, Covey says, well, I've, you know, I've taught you your lesson. I'm going to um, I'll go away now, but it was obvious to Douglas that he had won this fight. And he tells the story in the auto autobiography and he says a couple things. He's writing this, remember, or at least publishing it in 1855. So this is 20-so years after um, the fight took place. And he says, a man without force is without the essential dignity of humanity. And then later on, a couple paragraphs later, he says, um, at that point when I when I was battling Covey, I reached the point when I was not afraid to die. This spirit made me a free man, in fact, when I remained a slave in form. Just very puzzling <laughs> statement if you think about Douglas being a slave for two years or so after this. What does it mean to be a free man, in fact, but remaining a slave in form? I don't want to go on our long philosophical detour of that. But I guess my point is that on the one hand, you might think, well, Douglas's lived experience is oppression violence, and that's the end of it. 
And that would, in a sense, be true because he was a slave and he was brutalized and <laughs> and oppressed for for you know until he was. 19, 20 years old, but clearly he reflects on this experience and injects meaning into it. Well, I guess that's not quite right. I don't, I don't mean to suggest that the, the experience, the meaning doesn't match the experience, but what he reflects on and how he extracts meaning from the experience tells us that he was able to transcend the lived experience, you know, in a way that you might, might not have expected. Um, now, Douglas didn't, in Douglas's case, he didn't even need a a classroom and a and a teacher to do this. He he read books and and um, and speeches and and managed to to do this for himself, which is kind of astounding. But nonetheless, that I think is what I mean. That's a kind of overly maybe dramatic example of what um, Bugby's talking about. But I think it's a it's a good example, and you can you know you can think of much more modest modest examples of things that that happen to you that that uh, the meaning of it seems obvious to you in the moment or shortly after that, you know, but thinking about it two weeks later, a year later, right, you might think of something, something different. And I think so Bugby, I think, is emphasizing the kind of duty and responsibility and kind of need of human beings, not to just let experience lie, but to go back to it. Um, And in that sense, I guess he's, he's, he's not a, he's, He's not an academic in the sense that uh, you you can talk about philosophy and and these philosophical concepts and not even worry about applying them to experience, right? I guess that would be the other danger that we haven't talked about yet is that you 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 actually want to engage the reflection and learning on the concrete reality around you, or I or I guess the you know his argument would be well, what's what's the point if we're not trying to think about how this is meaningful for our actual lives. Yeah. You know, this, this sort of raises, raises an interesting issue, right? Like I said, in the beginning, Bugby is not an overtly political thinker. He doesn't talk about regimes. He doesn't really engage with problems of, of that we might, you know, call sort of problems of like a political issues or something, but he's very keyed into, and he's responding to things in the shape of of our political lives together, right? He he mentions later that one of the that, that young people today are are, are facing a, a host of problems, and one of those problems has to do with sort of the uncertainty of their future, right? A kind of precarity and a, and a sort of listlessness. One of those has is what he calls a technological industrial scheme. He mentions this kind of yeah this this question of like the lifestyle, you know, the sort of seventies counterculturalism um, that's floating around and sort of new leftism that's that's happening in the late sixties and early seventies. And he ultimately settles on on right the, the the thing that's the most port that's that's most important and the most urgent to address is this problem of sort of the emptiness of meaning. And then that becomes his the 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 center around which his his things his thought his thoughts on liberal education sort of swirl. He doesn't think that education should be directly in the service of politics, right? You don't go and get educated so that you can become politically liberated or something like that, or or or, or that so that you can become a more thoughtful activist or something and change the world in a particular kind of way. But he, he does seem to think that winning meaning through this process of becoming educated uh, is likely to have salutary political consequences. Right. So in the, in the, the, the example that you gave about Douglas, right. I mean, there's Douglas wins a kind of freedom and it's a non insubstantial sort of freedom in recognizing that, uh, 
right in the in the in this in this fight right he loses the fight but he wins the fight you know in a very strange way he 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 wins meaning and so therefore therefore he kind of um he becomes liberated in a very important kind of sense now bugby is not going to say that this kind of intellectual liberation needs to be formalized into a political project whatsoever but he does seem to think that that it, it that it responds to these issues that are facing us that uh technological industrial sort of this 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 flurry of technology in the applied sciences this lifestyle problem um the sort of question of precarity that all of these things bear in some way upon this kind of crisis of meaning yeah so it's 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 it seems to me that he's 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 taking a step that is very reminiscent of something like the socratic step right that rather than thinking about well everything is water or something or like everything is love and strife what if we devoted our thoughts to those things that are nearest to us the texture of the life as it is lived and that's how we'll come to understand uh what kinds of things need to happen um mm -hmm. you know bugby doesn't use the term something like the human soul but it does seem to be something like well if we investigate the soul like we, we can know the world through the soul or something like that right we we know ourselves and we know the world and in, in, in its mutuality is how he describes it so there is some kind of clarity upon political problems that one gets through the process of finding clarity in one's in, in the meaning of one's own life yeah maybe we can connect that to the concept of responsibility he says um on page four the sense of responsibility for meaning is the key to the development of the educational potential of the person and this is evoke the power to evoke it must be at least latent uh, in the things studied uh, and then later on he talks about the teacher's role in trying to evoke that sense of responsibility for the meeting in the student um, and so i guess two two questions maybe talk for for a minute about um the sense of responsibility for meaning um, can you know? Can we say sort of re rephrase that and talk about what that means in concrete terms? You know, responsibility for what or responsibility to whom is he is he talking about? Uh, and then and then second um, just has to do. My second question would have to do with the the power to evoke both both being latent in the thing studied and and being also the responsibility of the of the teacher. Um, you know, how does what? How do we know what? subject matter will evoke the kind of responsibility he's after he um you know he doesn't explicitly mention uh great books in the way that strauss or or eva brand do so um yeah i guess any any take a crack at any of any of that <laughs> yeah the question of responsibility is a tricky one because it seems to be a responsibility that is both one that is deeply personal it's a responsibility to oneself but then it's also a, it's a responsibility kind of to the world right that this process of of winning meaning i mean the meaning is non-arbitrary it's not like he's trying to say well go out and find anything that seems to make sense of your life no matter how crazy it is mm -hmm. he seems to want to say something like the the kind of meaning that that is to be one is one that one in which the the self and the world come into focus at the same time so 
it's something like the the rediscovery of nature, though he doesn't use that term, right? Both mm-hmm. understanding the nature of things and then the nature of this of of this of the self or the human or human nature or something like that. Um, it's curious that he avoids that kind of terminology, and I think that that's in part because he wants to avoid uh, a sort of strictly philosophical lexicon mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and to and to subvert it and to show that actually the, the kinds of things that philosophy is always focused on are actually are, are already kind of present in our simple day-to-day language as it is. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's a sense of it, living a better life requires having a meaning of what life is for. And then it also requires having a meaning of how one fits into the larger scheme of things and then how one fits into relationships with other people. So it seems like the responsibility is kind of top to bottom, um, but it's it's unclear where he thinks it begins. Um, and it seems like it begins perhaps just in the relationship between teacher to student um, and ultimately in the teacher, right? The teacher is, is, is the one who becomes the model for what responsibility looks like. And so if the teacher can demonstrate that properly and the, then, the, then the student can, can hopefully, uh, then the teacher can occasion the student's sort of reception of the sense of responsibility. And then it can kind of work from there into something larger. And as to the, your second question about sort of great books and liberal education, uh, one, one thing I failed to mention in the beginning is that Bugby piloted this program in the 70s at the University of Montana called the Integrated Studies Program, I think, or something like that, which was effectively a great books program. It was a lot of reading of, of you know, literature and philosophy and old histories from 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 across the, the the sweep of Western letters. It didn't last a super long time. I think it had maybe a decade or a little bit over a decade of a lifespan, but there are still students alive who had studied in this program with him. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some material archived at the University of Montana that that shows the reading lists and things like that, and it it's uh, uncannily similar to something that you'd find at St. John's College, with a couple of differences. Like rather than writing essays, you were largely the students largely wrote kind of reflective pieces, trying to sort of develop this relationship between their own life and then the text, right? That was, that was the mm. sort of the main focus. But yeah, I think that he, I think he ultimately was a kind of friend to the great books, even though it doesn't seem like he ever had any real familiarity with the great books colleges that existed at the time. He, I, I never, I have yet to find any record of him having said anything about St. John's College or about the program at University of Chicago or anything like that. Mm. But it was cl- it's clear to me that he was trying to make something like that happen at the University of Montana, succeeded for a little bit, ultimately failed. Um, but uh, yeah, his sympathies were, were very close with this kind of approach. Good. Yeah, that's that's interesting. He talks in the middle of the essay, you already alluded to this a little bit. Um, this is early 70s. And, and so we're kind of in the middle of the, or not in the middle of, but I, I guess shortly after the uh, kind of the launching of, of the new left. And so he, he says the threat to higher education appears as a kind of vacuousness and inauthenticity. And so he seems to be suggesting that the, the students who are rejecting the system, right, to, to use language they, they might have used, are, are not wrong to sense that things, um, things in the educational system are, are not what they should be. But he says, nonetheless, they they reproduce the, the problem that they seize upon in their own lives by rejecting an inauthentic lifestyle for uh, what 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 I think he would he would think is a kind of um, 
hedonistic pose that they choose and they think they're opting out of the of the system and so i was just curious to get your reaction i mean is there a are there any comparisons or connections to be made with the the threat of vacuousness and inauthenticity you know back then to today or do you do you think that the you know the threats have have changed and you know if so how have they how have they changed yeah i i want to read this passage um that you pointed to because i think that it uh it really lays the problem out really well so he's he's kind of talking about the problem with this this notion of even the idea um lifestyle so he says the readiness with which the expression lifestyle has itself caught on is not without pathos and irony. The pathos lies in the fact that style may indeed be in question, but the irony lies in what happens to our style of life insofar as we tacitly assume that it reduces to options available to choice over which the person may exercise autonomous control. That assumption tacitly reproduces at the level of an unexamined attitude, the very style of life underlying the inauthenticity and the vacuousness manifest in those forms of life which are objected to. One's actual style is not put on, whatever it may be that one can put on or off at will. I just thought that was such, such a beautiful explication of the problem, right? So he agrees ultimately that, that there is something of style that's, that's, up, that's up, for, up for question here, right? That the way that one sort of lives one's life, the way that the sort of figure one cuts in the world, I mean, all of these things are, are, are implicated in the kind of thing that we're trying to do when we're talking about education. Um, we're trying to refine ourselves in a particular kind of way. But this idea that you can just sort of pick from a slate and choose it and then slip it on like you might a shirt and then kind of walk out into the world. He says that this creates this, this is just a way of, um, he says, remaining parasitically tributary to the problem that you're trying to get over. So uh, you end up feeding back into the same issue of this kind of vacuousness and emptiness uh right because because yeah you can feel that it's just a shirt i mean you can feel that that the thing that you've done uh is just a mask over the void um is is the problem still around i mean i think it's gotten worse frankly <laughs> i think i mean there, you know in, in the question of lifestyle you know um the superficiality of this notion of lifestyle is such that it seems like there's still the opportunity for a kind of persuasion you can you can sort of pitch a different way of living as a better way of living in a kind of rhetorical frame that might persuade somebody away from, I don't know, doing a kind of hedonistic frivolity, right? The thing that we have today, which is like the same sort of issue, but with a different kind of metaphysical status is the, the problem of identity, right? And I think, I think Bugby would say, like, absolutely, you know, that our, our notion of identity, right? The, the way that we perceive, perceive ourselves is also up for for question, and it's also one of, one of the things we're trying to figure out in this process of becoming educated. But again, this notion that you can just either choose from a slate of identities, or you can just have your that your identity is just immediately present to you, that you can just know it, and then you know you can invoke it constantly um, in order to solicit certain ways of acting from other people, so on and so forth. I mean, that is the same problem, but but deepened because I'm not sure that there's the same the same uh, possibility of persuasion. Right. There, there might be, but it's just it's just significantly harder to do because if you feel like you have this kind of hard thing lodged deep inside of you that you're constantly acting out rather than it being a just kind of way that you happen to be doing things, um, there's going to be a significantly more resistance against uh, changing that. 
Right. Um, yeah. You can throw off a, a lifestyle if someone mm -hmm. convinces you that it's not worth pursuing, but throwing off an identity that you think you are committed to, right, is a much more difficult thing. But I guess in both cases, you're right. The Bugby would say in, in, in each case, you have not risked yourself and put yourself and your experience and subject matter before you in, into question that, that you've retreated from that. It reminds me of, of um, Václav Havel's description of, of um, the experience of responsibility is, is found when, when you begin to escape from ideology, right? And, and if you're living in a totalitarian communist regime, once, once ideology is in question, or he, he even makes the case that uh, a, a sort of slightly less acute version of this would be um, not deferring to experts about scientific experts about what what how to live your life, what the meaning of of life is. And, and so if, if it's either lifestyle or identity, you're not taking responsibility for for meeting or, or for yourself. Well, that's a really great uh, example of what risk looks like, right? Yeah. <laughs> of, of questioning ideology. I mean, that is, I think, one form of, of what, what Bugby would like to see happen. And that puts it, I think, in the sharpest possible focus uh, that wait, what, what, what's at risk in not doing this kind of education? Well, you, you, you become a foot soldier for a kind of ideology, right? Which... Mm -hmm as we saw throughout the 20th century is a really dreadful thing to be and a dreadful process to happen. And what's at risk in actually becoming educated? Well, uh, it's the risk of extreme social sanction, if not violence towards you. Right. Uh, but nonetheless is right. It's, it's good. <laughs> it's a thing you should do. Right. Right. And so he, he, after he describes the, the threat as vacuousness and inauthenticity and the, the problem of lifestyles, then he moves to the solution and talks a lot about um, the importance of one-to-one, -one, you know, teacher-student relationships. And so this, I mean, this makes makes sense when thinking about the beginning of the essay and self-risk, right? I mean, the, the the, and I think we even talked about this um, on the on the previous episode with with Zena Roosevelt and 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 Jonathan, the the importance of creating this environment of of trust and care in the classroom. And so he's, I think Bugby's great on this, that, that, um, you know, this is just something that cannot, cannot be done right in a giant lecture hall. And so he, you know, he recommends these one-to-one -one relationships as being necessary for the, the cultivation of, of the, the kind of instincts he thinks the students, um, you know, need to, to develop. Yeah, he, he talks about this in such in such moving language. Um, I want to find the yeah the the passage exactly right. Um, I'm just going to read another another passage from this. He says, "More and more, it becomes apparent that the work of liberating education cannot be done on mass. That there can be no effective substitute for direct one to one work between a teacher and each student for whom that teacher is responsible, whatever other forms their work together may take." If the student is to be liberated in point of educational potential, that person must be listened to with earnest and discerning attention directly. Without that, criticism of the student's work is likely to miss what lies behind the way in which the work is, is being done. 
and the mutual trust necessary to deep candor is not likely to come about. If evocation of mutual trust and responsibility for what is at issue and study require this direct relationship given the climate of our times. It is not that students need to be confirmed that they are okay just as they are, not at all, but they do need to be accepted in the humility, the patience, and the hope requisite to their relaxation and trust. And I, I just, I, I love his emphasis on, on trust, right? That again, a lot of, a lot of what education comes down to comes down to these, these sort of affectations of the soul, right? These sort of virtues and feelings and these really kind of basic human comportments to each other and to the world and to ourselves. And that, just as thinking requires a kind of courage, the courage of reflection, the courage of putting oneself at risk, so too does learning require trust. You have to trust your teacher to be a, a, a worthwhile guide. Um, the teacher has to trust the student to be able to do the, do the difficult work of thinking, however much it might seem like they're having difficulty with it, right? I think of Socrates and Mino <laughs> that, you know, uh, Mino was at least willing to continue the conversation and, and however dense he proved um, and Socrates was willing to, to try whatever he had at hand to, to get him to see that uh, that virtue is something that you act and not just something that you speak about. And, you know, wh whatever the, whatever the prickliness of that dialogue, I do think that there is a mutual trust between the two of them. And I think that that I think that, you know, Bugby is really uh, is very right about this need of there being, you know, a, a sort of trust and a, 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 the relaxation of trust between student and teacher is something I find really, really beautiful way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, it, it gets at something deep that has to happen between teacher and student and just shows how, how difficult, how difficult that relation is. I mean, it's something that we should certainly aspire to and, and develop, but um that passage just kind of reminded me that that um, I think the mistake that people make about teaching nowadays is is just just to forget what a great responsibility it is. They just assume that it means, you know, walking into the classroom and being able to talk intelligently about Tocqueville or Plato, and students will take some some decent notes and write some decent essays, and that's you know that's enough. But um, you know, he, the way he talks about it, right. That's, that's not even the, the beginning of it. So. Yeah. Or even the idea that you can just, you can really, um, uncomplicatedly refer to teaching in a university classroom as labor, right. This is a thing that I sort of, I, I think about from time to time. Uh, there's right. There's certainly something of work to it. Um, there's a lot of stuff about it. That's really boring and frustrating. You have to grade papers that are often quite bad. You have to, to do tests or whatever, but the notion that it's something like digging a trench uh, is I've always found really kind of grotesque, you know, that, that, that digging a trench does not involve the soul of another person <laughs> and, right. and that, and, and knowing that you have the soul of another person at, at stake in, in, in whatever you're doing. Yeah. really evokes a, that, that, that sense of responsibility. I mean, the other thing I'll, I, I should note is that, you know, Bugby taught at the university of Montana. He wasn't at something like the university of Chicago, which was a place that produced droves of students who went on to write lots of books and so on and so forth, right? But um, he does have a number of students alive today who have written very, very movingly about him as a teacher. Hmm. Um, there was this guy, Ed Mooney, who is a, a teacher of religious studies at I think Syracuse University. 
Um, there's a gentleman named Cyril Welch who taught at Mount Allison University in New Brunswick for a very long time, who's written a number of long essays about um, Bugby as a teacher. Um, this guy, Jim Hatley, who, teach, who teaches somewhere in Maryland. Uh, and there, there are a handful of others out there too. And every one of them has written just these beautiful, beautiful reflections on, on Bugby as this very sort of careful, thoughtful, you know, just wonder, wonderful teacher. And like Quine says, right, this ultimate exemplar of the examined life. I mean, I think basically everybody who knew him saw in him something that he took this this activity very, very seriously. And uh, yeah, you can, I mean, you, you just get that sense when you read these essays from his former students. Right. Well, one of the the final points that he makes in his his essay, I think, is one of the most interesting and and profound, but also a bit um, a bit difficult to to untangle. And this is his his point about the necessity of of studying the past, and he mm -hmm. makes a very interesting uh, connection between developing a proper disposition towards the past, and somehow that will help lead uh, to a restoration uh, of a healthy relationship between speaking and doing. Mm -hmm. So there's there's lots of uh, kind of deep philosophical stuff going on in, in this in this uh, in this part of the essay. So I just wanted to um, maybe read uh, a little bit of um, little this this part where he deals with, with the past. Yeah. So let, I'll just read two passages which are not right next to each other, but pretty close. So this is on page seven, he says, uh, tutelage is necessary for the living significance of the seemingly dead past, which it is characteristic of our times either to ignore as simply superseded or to take it up uh, or to take up with it in killing fashion. As might be expected, it is little suspected by a present which passively assumes its historicity rather than appropriating it in an active and searching manner that much of the uniform vacuity of the present reflects this need of an appropriation of that very past left languishing in oblivion. And then, you know, he makes the, the case that we all have to be confronted with the past in order to have a healthier conception of, of what's possible in the present and, and future. I, I mean, I think that that passage about um, we can ignore it either as superseded or take up with it in killing fashion is, is great, right? Either and the, the, I mean, this is a, certainly, in my view, the the two tendencies of the academy today: either to dismiss the past as completely irrelevant, right? So whatever discipline you're in, psychology, economics, um, political science, you know, what was said 200 years ago doesn't doesn't seem to matter, so we'll just ignore it. Or the opposite would be we we can um, the the past is only useful because it demonstrates how superior we are, right? The past is racist and, you know, on down the, the list of, of how bad things were. So that certainly hasn't, hasn't changed. Uh, but I wonder if you could talk a bit about why he thinks the, why Bugby thinks the recovery of the, of the past um, is so central to, to his project. Yeah, I thought this, this is another one of these things that's just extraordinarily moving and also just very, um, dense and difficult to tease out the, the specifics. I'll read another passage in response. This is on page eight. He says, 
The fundamental task of education is to assist, to collaborate in bringing to pass the conversancy of the person and the world and their, mutu and their mutuality. This is even more fundamentally a task of placement within the fullness of historical time so that it may become the time of our lives. Then it is one of adjustment simply in contemporaneous relationship to the things around us. For the reach of time alone can fund the meaning of these things and endow our lives with a purposefulness in which we embrace things with respect. That too is the way of self-respect insofar as it comes to pass. Only if the past comes alive in us, do we have a future which can own us. That seems to be the hardest thing for present and future oriented America to grasp. Yeah. So it seems like, right, this, this notion of trying to keep, trying to ha have a, a comportment to the past such that it is something that is alive and urgent. Uh, that's the only way that the, that our present world can be meaningful, truly meaningful. And the only way that our we can have anything that looks like the future at all. I mean, I think here of like uh, these these really uh, flaccid defenses of liberal education that come from people who are like, well, it's going to make you a better modern citizen, or it's going to help you adjust to this crazy modern world, you know. And I, uh, I mean, I've always like really, I've, I've I've struggled to kind of find the right sort of language to criticize those ways of thinking, which seem on their face, just extremely goofy. And I think that Bugby, right, he's not responding to exactly that same kind of thing, but he's responding to the impulse. That impulse is to say something like, well, the purpose of education is to adjust to the present. And he's like, no, it's to adjust to, <laughs> to adjust to the entire history of human life. It's to adjust to, it's to kind of be plucked out of the stream and to be able to, as, as W.E.B. Du Bois says, to sort of walk on arm in arm with Balzac and Aristotle, right? Like, and that's one, and, 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 and sort of appropriating the past as something that is actually the present, um, that the problems and the wisdom of, of the past and, 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 the, and what has been written in the past actually bear directly upon our lives today. Um, and that's another thing that is not self-evident and requires work on our part to, to achieve that perspective. But that is the way that the world becomes meaningful, right? This is, he says that this is even more fundamentally the task of education is, is to be able to achieve this kind of placement within the fullness of historical time, right? To kind of be able to, to see the permanent condition of humanity and to be able to be open to the range of, of responses to that condition that have been made over thousands of years and that many of which we have uh, because they've been handed down, many of which we have because we've had to sort of wrest them from oblivion. Um, but uh, that's ultimately the task of education is to, is to learn how to dwell with the, the sort of trans-historical wisdom of humanity and sort of win a place in it for ourselves. Right. And, and that makes sense too, if you think about the second point, his connection between that and language right if if you were completely enveloped in the present you would let present meaning you know dictate action but then that action right would never be be questioned by anything apart from the present right and and so in a, in a, in a funny way you need language for meaning but but meaning can also 
transcend language. I was trying to just, as you were talking, I was thinking about examples, right? I mean, one, one example that came to mind is prudence, right? I mean, prudence now means kind of cautious, a little wimpy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the prudent person is someone who doesn't want to take risks and, you know, maybe is calculating costs and benefits in a kind of basic, not tip, not terribly courageous way, but prudence in its original meaning is quite, quite different. Right. And so you're sort of forced to grapple with, you know, different, different kinds of human experience to the extent that you try to sift through all this different, different meaning. So, um, you know, that's, it just makes, makes, it forces people, you know, to think through what they're saying in an obvious, in a maybe it's not so obvious, but in an important way, if, if, uh, if they're forced to confront the past. Yeah, it's it's amazing to think that the, one of the central virtues of political philosophy uh, becomes in our age uh, the one of the the taglines of a like advice column. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a, a really strange um, right. uh, change over history. Yeah, he has all this stuff about the stuff about language. I thought was really interesting. Right, he says whatever the human spirit may do, it can only come to know itself in the doing through becoming articulate in speech. Without that, neither self nor world can become decisively real. I mean, this seems another another one of these kind of like um, accidental or not so accidental kind of Heideggerianisms, right? That language is the house of being or something, mm-hmm. right? That which is, is to us in as much as it is in language. And if we're trapped within the, so yeah, exactly as, exactly as you said, right? If we're trapped within the sort of concepts and jargon of the day, then we are we are always kind of cut off from the ability to have conversations with the past um, and to be open to uh, what the past has to tell us. Um, and I mean, I, I, it, it seems to me that, you know, the strangeness of the prose of this essay is in large part an attempt at living out this hostility to jargon, right? That yeah. in, in his own writing, he sought to sort of undermine um, this, yeah, this, this kind of, over conceptual sort of way of speaking or right the the reduction of speech to what he you know he says a flat wooden or cliche ridden jargon um all of his written output is is an attempt at kind of getting underneath that and 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 saying something in in words that are not immediately kind of capturable in such a manner right uh well we're getting up to the end of the time maybe we should talk about uh, just these concrete suggestions that he that he makes. So it's a deeply philosophical uh, essay, as as we've talked about. But at the end, you know, as as uh, as in keeping with the fact that this is a response to uh, this blue ribbon commission, he's like, here are the four things we need to do, uh, and the four things are one, reduce the load on teachers um, in terms of the number of classes they teach and in terms of the number of students. Two, properly prepare and certify able teachers. Three, colleagueship between secondary and post-secondary teachers. And fourth, he says professional and vocational education uh, should not preempt liberal education at any level. So those are the four. Um, The third one is the one that struck me as particularly interesting because this is something that at least in, in my career as a, as a teacher and I guess as a, as a student, is almost never spoken about, that, that there's this vast gulf between 
you know, high school and before teachers and then college teachers. And they're never, you know, they're completely different. They live in completely different worlds. They have a completely different set of responsibilities. Um, you know, it's almost like they're just different, different human beings, right? The way we talk about them, uh, which is really strange if you, if you think about it. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the 18 year old high school senior and the 19 year old college freshman are not particularly different. So it's a very strange thing that we've created this vast gulf. Um, and I've, I've taught um, in the summertime, I, I teach for the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. They have a program for high school teachers. So they, they bring some college professors to talk to the talk to the teachers. And, and I've really gained a lot from, from doing that because I talk to them about what's worked in their classroom. And there isn't, you know, it's not like we're talking about, again, these two completely different um, populations. Um, so I was struck by the wisdom of, of that. Like it's, you know, may, maybe the colleagueship wouldn't develop into something that meaningful. I have no idea, but um, it's just something that it seems to me one ought to to entertain and of course his his emphasis on on liberal education right always being the core that professional and vocational shouldn't shouldn't be preempted of course is is important um but i don't know any any thoughts on these concrete suggestions joey well yeah well, for one i mean i i thought it was really amazing after this such a beautiful and profound and strange essay about the nature of of learning and and the the you know the need to sort of put one's soul up for risk and stuff to come back to these like you know very concrete practical matters yeah, at the very yeah. end and be had to be reminded that this actually is a response to yeah a blue risen but blue ribbon uh uh essay thing um was really interesting and and, and kind of, it was something kind of funny about it but um, but but also sort of, yeah moving again and as much as right could, imagine being a bureaucrat in the Montana the state of Montana educational system and receiving this as an entry for you know what how the education system should be structured I mean yeah. I'm not sure you'd know what to do with it but uh, it'd be a pretty amazing experience nonetheless yeah um, yeah. But yeah I mean there were a couple of points I, I I too was very struck by that third point about the the need to develop colleagueship between high school and college teachers I think that it's a that's a really incredible subtle insight actually on his part um in part and and, and he seems to think there, there there's what, what is implied here at the end is that he seems to think that actually most of what he's saying in in the essay pertains to both the high school and the college level yes he's not yeah, yeah, right yeah. he says right. that that the in, in point one he says that perhaps the most critical years and sort of you know in imparting in a student these the this these sort of you know things about what liberal education has to offer comes in high school and so you know high school needs to become a place that is serious again which it seems like it's not uh, mm -hmm. according to him and then right the second point about the need to train uh, educated teachers right this is another sort of implied criticism that he says the teacher should be a deeply and broadly educated person my assumption here is that is that this is not the case especially at the high school level. Yeah, I, I, I think that that insight is really is really amazing. And I mean, I, I think that he's, he's right about uh, the, the, the significance of high school, you know, that, that, that the age in which students are in high school is a crucial one for sort of, you know, this kind of openness to the world and openness to thinking about thinking about the self and, 
and, and thinking about how the self should exist with others in the world. And, and all of these things suddenly become up for dispute in, in, in a high, a, the sort of high school age student. And um, I mean, it seems to me that high school kids in our age are still denied the ability to think through these things. They're still subjected to a very sort of flat, meaningless kind of education that at its very best is just a, uh, the, the imparting of a flurry of knowledge right. that doesn't actually do them much uh, existentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm a, uh, I supervise students at the University of Chicago and I have conversations with these students and, and they still have no idea what education is for. I mean, they've been spending their last four years in these extremely kind of high powered, prestigious high schools all over the country, all over the world. Uh, writing numerous essays and doing these, you know, uh, application essays and so on and so forth. And they show up here and they don't really know why. <laughs> and uh, it's just because it's a quote unquote good school, you know? Um, right. Yeah. This, the, this, these exact same kinds of problems of the kind of frivolity of, of high school education and of uh, the inability of college education to properly sort of steward young people into um being responsible for, for the meaning of their lives and being responsible for kind of the meaning of the world more broadly. Um, these are still urgent issues today that are uh, uh, not being uh, treated with, with, with the, the proper amount of urgency. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, thanks for introducing me to, to Henry Bugby, Joey. Can you maybe, um, you, I think you mentioned one, one book in your introduction um, remind remind me about the name of the book and and also if if there are other essays by Bugby that that you would recommend or you mentioned a few essays about about Bugby I mean if readers are are in, interested in pursuing more by this interesting quirky thinker where where should they go yeah his, so his his only one book is called the inward morning um, published by the University of Georgia Press and I think something like 1976. Uh, it's an extraordinary little book. I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Uh, that's a good place to go. And if you if you just Google Henry Bugby essays, uh, James Hatley has a collection of about ten, the, um, which come from this chapbook that he produced for students uh, that you can find um, on the on Salisbury uh, College website. So hmm. there are a couple on there, and 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 they range from things. You know, there's this beautiful one on the Book of Job. Uh, that is a very strange and 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 um, very deep essay. There was one about his good friend Gabriel Marcel, who died, and then Bugby wrote this remembrance of Marcel. Um, and there's he, one of one of Bugby's sort of most wonderful things is writing about wilderness. Um, he cares a lot about both uh, sort of factual wilderness, about forests and rivers and stuff in America, but also he tends to think think of and write about being itself as a kind of wilderness through one as kind of through which one is kind of wandering and and noticing the noticing the sights and sounds and smells and um, so there's an essay on there uh, on, on that website called Wilderness in America and then there's there's not a lot I mean there are not many people have written about him you know he's not like a, a particularly well-known guy but there is a book of essays called Wilderness in the Heart that was put together by his former student Ed Mooney um, mm-hmm. that you can buy that's got some really great remembrances and some really great reflections on him there so uh, I recommend all that stuff. It's all, you know, you, you can't go wrong with Bugby. How did, how did you first stumble on him? Uh, I, I had a, fr- so when I was at St. John's College, I had a friend who had learned about him from a friend and that friend of a friend is from Montana. 
And so I think that he had heard about him as a kind of the, the, the great philosopher of the state of Montana. But um, I think this is basically Bugby's own, only readership for many years has been this kind of word of mouth. You got to read this guy uh, kind of thing, you know, um, is sort of putting the book in somebody else's hand. So I've, I've right. done that with, I've bought, I've, I think I've given out about 12 copies of the Inward Morning and I continue to, to buy him <laughs> and hand him out. So uh, you may very well receive one from me in the future flag. You're an evangelist. That's amazing. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I really appreciate um, you introducing me to, to him. This is, you know, one of the reasons why I thought this kind of podcast would be a good idea to precisely to discover, right, people thinkers that just you know would not have come across anyone's radar screen uh otherwise so so i really do thank you for uh for bringing bugby to, to my attention and uh thanks for being on enduring interest yeah great thanks so much flag it's been a blast you've been listening to enduring interest a podcast sponsored by the zephyr institute the Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, and message us, please, to recommend guests or books. Our Twitter handle is at the EIPod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening and see you next time on Enduring Interest.